1% of companies founded ever raise venture money. So most of the vast majority of companies never raise venture money. Welcome back to 40 Minute Mentor, the podcast on a mission to raise aspirations and inspire the next generation of category-defining founders. From purpose-led entrepreneurs to world-class investors and even Olympians, you'll learn firsthand from today's successful leaders and what it takes to be brilliant, all in just 40 minutes. Today, I'm joined by Davor Hebel, managing partner at Eight Roads Ventures, the global venture capital firm backed by Fidelity. Eight Roads backs and partners with game-changing tech and healthcare companies across Europe, Asia, Israel, and the US. The platform has 50-plus years of venture investing experience, $11 billion in AUM, over 300 portfolio companies, and they've had a very impressive 60-plus IPOs. Following a career in consulting, Davor has been managing partner at Eight Rows for over 18 years and has backed hugely successful companies such as HiBob, AppsFlyer, Otrium, Spendesk, and many more. I am incredibly honored that Davor has decided to join us today on 40 Minute Mentor and share his incredible experience and career story with us all. So, Davor, welcome to 40 Minute Mentor. Thank you for being here. How are things? Hi, James. Great to be on and really enjoying all the content and support you provide for our founders. Oh, thank you so much. Well, we would love our audience to get to know you a bit better. So we'll warm you up as we like to with some uh, quick fire questions. So please, can you finish the following sentences after me? Question one, the deal I am most proud of is? Probably my first deal I ever led in 2010, uh, an online games company called InnoGames. That was set up by uh, two brothers and a childhood friend, bootstrapped, and uh, we ended up investing when they were a tiny outfit outside of Hamburg, Germany. And we grew it to hundreds of millions of revenue and hundreds of employees, and then successfully sold it to a Swedish conglomerate called MTG. And ultimately, the last uh, piece of transaction was uh, valued at close to a billion dollars. Wow, incredible. What a deal. Uh, fantastic. Thank you. And I wish I could have invested in... You know, James, there's so many. The one that comes to mind from my early career is Spotify. I met Daniel and Martin in 2007. And I was never the, the one to buy music, but I really enjoyed the sort of the idea of having it as a subscription. And at that time, uh, my partners, I was still a relatively young investor with, you know, most of my folks thought, look, music is going to be free forever. And uh, it, it's just a, such a silly idea. So um, ended up uh, passing and, um, you know, but always been very, very fond of that company because it's also one of the big global success stories out of Europe that we can be proud of. Absolutely. Now that's interesting. It's, uh, there's always one that gets away, isn't there? <laughs> a myth I'd like to bust about VC is... Probably that you need to raise venture capital money to be a successful business. You know, venture capital asset class is quite a unique and specific pool of capital. I think the statistic is that something like one-sixth of 1% of companies founded ever raise venture money. So most of the vast majority of companies never raise venture money. You know, what we're looking for are companies that can grow very, very fast in very nascent markets. But just because you haven't raised VC money should not stop you from embarking on your mission of building a great company. 
Yeah, that's really great advice. And I think uh, I think we all get sometimes swept up in the, the ecosystem about raising from VC. And the reality is the vast majority of people don't do that. And it's absolutely fine. And you can build successful businesses without. Yeah, for sure. It's great, great advice. The hardest part of being a VC is? You are very close to the entrepreneurs, the heroes of, I think, our world, I would say, but you're not really an entrepreneur. So your success is really driven through working through founders and working with management teams and making sure that they are successful in some ways, like a coach of a you know sports team. And you got to be careful not to mix the two. Yeah, that's really interesting. I've spoken to a few investors that were operators before, and then you have that kind of, sometimes you see something that you just want to throw yourself into, but you can't, that's not your role. And I can imagine that at times can be quite frustrating and challenging, but that's really interesting. Thank you. And finally, the one thing I'd like to change about VC is? Yeah, there are probably a few. I think one that I've been trying to work on is really change the European VC landscape and make VCs more empathetic and supportive of the entrepreneurial struggle. I think being an entrepreneur, it's a bit of a too fancy of a word, but I think it's one of the, it's a hard job. And oftentimes we need to remind ourselves as VCs that it's on a daily basis, a real struggle. And so one of the things we've been trying to do is really build that empathy with our founders and surround them with support and the network and community to make their life as easy as possible, recognizing that it's not going to be easy. And the odds are really oftentimes stacked against them. Love that answer. Thank you so much. That is a, a really important topic. Well, I feel like we've already got a sense, a bit of an insight into who you are, Davil, but I would love to talk more about your career. But before we dig into Eight Roads and your investing success, I'd love to learn a bit about your upbringing. So tell our audience, if you don't mind, tell us a bit about your upbringing and how it has shaped you into the person and leader you are today. Sure. Well, I was born in Croatia. And at that time, it was called Yugoslavia. It was a communist country from two parents who were both athletes in the first part of their career and then educators. My dad happened to have won a gold Olympic medal in water polo in 1968 and then became a PhD in physics and became a university professor. And my mom was a, a national athlete in two sports, in diving and then in team handball. And after retiring, became a teacher. In fact, that's how they met. Uh, she was a freelance journalist and interviewed my dad after he won his gold Olympic medal. And um, they ended up uh, forming a family. And I probably am sort of the, the black sheep of the family, as you can already tell from their backgrounds. But I also liked both sciences and school early on, as well as sports. And um, probably was more passionate early on about sports, if I'm honest, even though I love math especially team sports. I played team handball uh, on, the, on the local team and then on a, in a junior national team and felt oftentimes that the team sports are a great proxy for working in companies where oftentimes the power of the collective is way stronger than any individual in particular and have always sort of been in, kind of drawn to this analogy of sports and, and peak performance in sports as well, you know, and then translating into business. And one of the things now we try to do in, at Aidroads is also trying to create a cohesive team and making sure that you know partnership can be quite individualistic, but we try to build it as a team and team win is more important than an individual win. You know, my dad was a big stickler for two things. Number one, uh, you know, you got to work hard. 99% of success is hard work. 
And then only when you get to the top levels, you know, the 1% talent will differentiate you, but nothing comes without that sort of hard work. But also it was quite encouraging for me to find the passion in life because that hard work is going to become almost not noticeable because you're going to be so passionate about what you do. And I must admit, I lucked out with DC because it doesn't really feel like work. And for whatever reason, ended up deciding that at 17, I wanted to go to the US. And I was an exchange student in California and really fell in love with the entrepreneurialism, with Silicon Valley, with the spirit, and also kind of decided that I wanted to stay. So I did all of my education my undergraduate in computer science and math, my master's, my MBA in the US, and kind of learned about internet when I was studying computer science and really fell in love in the early 90s. It was kind of amazing that you could be anywhere in the world and through the power of the internet, you could connect with the rest of the world. And so in some ways, that really led me to my career. And you know, first, I ended up in a consulting firm, but ultimately led me to where I am today. What a great story. And as somebody that's also have a sporting father and sort of spent all my youth in sports teams, uh, I really, the parallel for me is very strong and something that I've always looked to build when it comes to my own business. So thank you for sharing. You mentioned consulting there. Um, so you started in consulting. I'd love to learn a bit more about the that experience and those foundational years of your career, because we've placed a, you know, a lot of the execs we place have come from a consulting background and we know a lot of consultants move into VC. So what was that experience like for you? And what were some of your biggest learnings from that period? Yeah, I spent a few years at McKinsey and Company, a consulting firm. I was originally based in New York and I think it was a great training ground coming out of school, you know, to set some real basics around problem solving, around a learning about business, because I didn't really know much about the business in general, and also to start learning about high-performing teams, both client teams and consulting teams. So it was really a foundational experience, I would say. You know, at the same time, sometime in a couple of years, I started realizing, well, most of the time we help large companies get even larger. And that felt maybe not as much the right place for me because I still felt this entrepreneurial energy in, inside of me. So I started to explore, you know, what might be next after McKinsey when I finished my business school uh, de- degree in, in the US at HBS. Amazing. And, and you ultimately pivoted into VC. So do you mind telling us how you went about that? And what was it that attracted you to the venture capital industry? You know, early on, I had some friends in, in business schools who, who had some experience and it felt like a potentially a perfect fit for me, a little bit of ADD that I have. It's obviously highly context switching job, but also you work with entrepreneurs very closely. You have to have both sort of analytical skills as well as people skills and business insights. And then ultimately you get to really put your money where your mouth is, unlike consulting, frankly, that I experienced. And I did a a startup in business school and I realized just how hard it was. And so Coming out of business school, I spoke with you know a few folks, and most people advised me, look, set up a company, sell it for a lot, a lot of money, and then somebody will hire you as a partner in a VC firm. And I thought, okay, well, you know, if I have a billion-dollar exit, do I really want to get a job after that? But I was lucky because um, in 2005, I came back uh, to London and wanted to sort of start to think about Europe as my kind of long-term place. And you, know, you all might remember, you know, at that time, it was what I call European entrepreneurial ice age. You know, it was still very few VCs, very few businesses. 
lots of stigma of failure. So I ended up just getting introduced, as it usually happens, you know, to a few folks who were thinking about bringing a, an associate into their firm and ended up getting lucky and getting a job. So um, it was just uh, kind of a coincidence, I would say. It's meant to be. Interesting. No, thank you. And I guess you would have had a, a relatively steep learning curve, I'd imagine, uh, you know, learning, moving into a new industry. And I'm sure over the years, there have been some challenging moments. So we don't always want to talk about all the, the unicorns and the exits. So tell us a bit more about the transition, the harder parts, some of the challenges you've faced over the years in your investing career. One thing that is very difficult about the job is it is such a multifaceted job. And one moment you're dealing with a strategic topic, the next one will be the hiring issue. The next time, you know, companies running out of cash. And I think probably the beginning of your career, when I just started, the kind of the imposter syndrome is pretty strong. And I think sometimes you also have to kind of take into context that we say 99 no's for every one yes on average. And so you will be saying a lot of no's to a lot of folks, but from the early on, you are not quite sure whether you're saying no to the right folks or consequently whether you're saying yes to the right folks. And it's just so brutally stressful because, you know, you certainly, again, you know, you don't want to miss the next Spotify, so to speak. And so, you know, you, I think you oftentimes try and work harder and harder, but it's not necessarily always the answer. You know, you have to sort of start building frameworks of how you think about investments and how to think about, you know, what's a good investment look like. But I would say the early innings of the job were quite, quite stressful. And I think the learning curve was quite steep. Did you overcome that learning curve? Is it just experience and sort of literally getting the miles in the tank and, and learning from doing and maybe make some mistakes? Is that kind of the only way you can do it in VC? Or were there other ways that you kind of overcome some of the challenging aspects? Well, you know, first, I think, there are big challenges. We've had some crises. I think we were just coming out of the 2001 tech crisis when I started. And then we obviously had the global financial crisis and, and then, you know, COVID and so on and so forth. I mean, there always is a crisis around the corner, I would say. But with startups, as you know, it's also just every day there is something that goes wrong. And so for me, the biggest thing that I had to learn is to just every day show up at, at work kind of expecting that something will go wrong because that's just the business of startups. And, you know, I always keep telling myself, you know, relax, nothing is under control because you just don't know what the next issue will be. And I think if you can kind of get yourself through this realization that, you know, building great company doesn't mean no issues, it actually means issues all the time. I think it's it all of a sudden it, it becomes a, just you know a much better way to frame that problem. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and it's sort of self-selecting, isn't it? We often talk about wanting to give a realistic version of entrepreneurship on this podcast, and I think if if that chaos and the the challenges every day and the ambiguity, if that excites you and you have the resilience to work through that and learn from it and turn that into a positive then you're likely to kind of probably enjoy the, the craziness of startups. Whereas if that terrifies you, then it's probably a sign that it might not be the environment that you'll thrive. And that's okay. I just think it's, you're so right. I think the word entrepreneurship is a bit too fancy. It sounds very glamorous. And, you know, when I was doing my startup, we, one day we had a Croatian president coming to see our tourist attraction we were building on the, on the coast of Croatia. And then the next day we were scraping the floors uh, late night because the workers didn't show up. And so this kind of peak to trough, incredible highs, so close to, you know, 
real challenges. And so I think that that is what something that it's on the back end, I think it's probably some of the most fun times people have also had. It's just, as you say, it is challenging. Yeah, the roller coaster. <laughs> well, um, you've seen it all in your 18-year investing career and have had you know, huge success. I would love to know your opinion on what characteristics do you need to have to become a really great investor? Yeah, you're very kind to say that. Look, I think great venture investors come in all shapes and sizes. You know, there really is no one size fits all. You know, as some of your guests have already outlined, lots of different backgrounds. I think if I look for some commonalities, probably the first, I would say it's good to just have this incredible passion for finding the next great company and just realizing, you know, it's a bit of a detective work and in trying to think where might the next company be, getting in front of those founders. And I oftentimes think of it as people call it the buy side business, but you're always on the sell side in venture. You know, great founders have always so many options in front of them in terms of capital. So you really have to have that passion for finding the next one. Then I think, you know, investing is a little bit an art and science, analytical mind, but also you need to at some point make the affirmative decision to make an investment. And, you know, there are always reasons to say no to an investment. If you just want to say no, I mean, look, it's an early stage business that has many things not working properly. So, but finding the times to actually say yes and figuring out what can go wrong versus what can go really right to make it into a humongous success, I think that's a challenge. And then finally, after the investment, you need to be steadfast, helping your founders, again, avoid the peaks and troughs of today is the amazing day, tomorrow is the, the most terrible day, and just keep building and help them build. And sometimes fear can creep up, uh, existential fears in the minds of founders, in, in the minds of management teams, and sometimes even in the minds of investors. You know, how is this investment going to make me look in front of my partnership? Or, But you really have to kind of somehow get away from that and learn to manage your fears and help your founders manage their fears because ultimately on the other side of fear is is greatness and success. And obviously easier said than done, but it's a daily practice that, that one needs to uh, exercise. Yeah, I love that. And it's so true. And I think this is where the, the, the truly great investors are often lauded by founders for their steadfast support throughout the good and the bad, and they're there throughout. And I think that's what, if I was a founder that took VC money, that's what you'd want them in your corner throughout. So yeah, I lo love that. We get a lot of people listening to the pod that want to work in VC. It's one of the main reasons we have been doing this feature because we get calls about it all the time. And I know that the industry, as we've already sort of alluded to, it's not easy. There's lots of challenges to it. So I, I thought it would be good to ask you someone that's been there for a long time and has seen the good, the bad, and the ugly, what important truths about the role and the industry should people know before they take the plunge to become a VC? One, I would say it's just, it takes a while. It takes time. I feel like in a startup, you oftentimes feel like on a daily basis, you're making accomplishments, you're getting things done, you're moving the ball forward. You know, sometimes it takes 10 years to know whether you're, good in investing. And sometimes luck can also play a, a sizable role. So delineating what was lucky and what was good. But, you know, I have still some of my best investments, you know, like HiBob and AppsFlyer, companies we invested in sometimes, you know, close to 10 years ago, and they're still growing. 
And so it takes a while for companies to blossom into and reach their potential. So sometimes I feel like if you're looking for something that's going to be very quick and you have this sort of a short-term thinking mentality, which, by the way, it's also okay. With VC, I think it takes time for the craft to develop and for the fruits of your labor to really mature and, and blossom. For sure. No, thank you. And you will have hired a lot of investors into A-Roads over the years. So what is it you're looking for in talent? And how can people interviewing with you make a really strong impression? Yeah, I think it starts with the passion, the passion for helping entrepreneurs. You know, one of the my favorite sort of things I look for, if they have is to see how, you know, why they're passionate, a failed project or failed entrepreneurial startup is one of my favorites. Those folks oftentimes really understand just how hard it is because I think we all kind of, when we launched our first entrepreneurial project, thought, okay, well, how hard can this really be? I have the idea. Now I'm just going to get on with it. And once you've actually realized just how hard it is, you create that empathy that we discussed. You create that sort of understanding that this struggle is real. I like that sort of as a foundation of somebody's personality. And then, of course, the combination of the ability to build relationships, the strategic insights into themes and technologies, and the work ethic. I mean, you know, the kind of the standards. And then finally, like we said, you know, having this detective mindset of just finding the next deal and thinking about, you know, what is almost nothing today and might be something huge tomorrow. So, you know, those are just some elements that that we tend to look for in our people. Some great, great tips there for anyone that's looking to interview with you. Thank you. We've talked a bit a bit there about VC and getting into VC in your earlier career, but I'd love to talk about 8Roads because it has such a rich history. So for those that don't know 8Roads, do you mind sharing a bit more about that history and what makes it such a unique fund here in, in 2024? We started you know, over 50 years ago when you know, Venture Capital asset class was just getting started in 1969. And we were the one of the first ones to recognize that entrepreneurship is really going global and that sort of great companies can come from anywhere. We set up our European presence in, in 2010 with a dedicated European fund, but we have been active here since the late 90s. And, you know, we really believe that great companies can come from anywhere and today, that I think that's visible. You know, some of our unicorns are in second and third tier cities across Europe, like Malmo in Sweden or Prague. And what we are trying to do is do everything we can to find companies with kind of call it early product market fit. So there's already something there and help them become globally successful companies that usually translates into leading kind of series A and B deals, but really we try to also surround the founders with sort of a community of value-added experts. We have about 35 global experts that can help with things like go-to-market, marketing, sales, product, finance. And especially, I think we, we think that that's important here in Europe because of that distributed nature of our founders. You know, in Silicon Valley, maybe you have this community, you can kind of get to know folks and you can find your mentors. Here, if you're building a company in Barcelona, there might be two, three other companies, but you really are oftentimes starved of knowing, you know, how do I go? Okay, I got to 100 employees, but how do I get to 1,000 employees? And what are the things that are waiting for me on the next step? So we're trying to really build this sort of community of experts that can help companies get to 
hundred and then thousand and then ultimately, you know, 10,000 employees on the path of global success. Incredible. And you've alluded to a couple of uh, the portfolio companies, but in terms of the types of industries and some names that our listeners might have heard, what are some of the most successful stories and exits? And I'd love your just take on what has made them such special companies. Yeah, I mean, globally, we had successes like Alibaba, Toast, Flywire, which are all you know publicly traded successful global winners. In Europe, we invest in scale-ups in software, consumer, fintech, digital health. And we have examples of sort of really successful, interesting companies in each of those. For example, in software as a service, you know, companies like Hibob, which is now a a global HR SaaS company that, you know, has thousands of customers all across the globe. And what's been amazing for them, and I think it's one of the trends that we see with some of our companies, is that they developed an international solution from the get-go. So they started off in UK and Israel, and they started selling in those markets. But then sooner than later, they found demand in the Nordics, in France, and then now they're also launched in and are very successful in the U.S. And so we start to see more and more companies where it's not U.S. first and then the international, but also we see companies going the other way around in the digital health companies like Aukin, which is a federated AI solution for oncology, both research as well as drug discovery. So they started with an incredibly strong AI team in Paris, but have now after their unicorn status, you know, expanded into the U.S. So I think in every in every segment, we are fortunate to have, it would used to be called uh, unicorns and they were the sort of the cool names now increasingly. I think we think of companies as successful 100 million plus of revenue IPO-able companies, but uh, yeah. Yeah, I love that. Thank you for sharing. And when you're, you're going to have so many companies pitching to you for investment, um, what is it that makes a founder and a business a no-brainer? For you, And have you got any examples of founders that have come in and just completely blown you away? Yeah, I mean, a few things, you know, and you probably, this has probably been already mentioned, you know, obviously great passion for solving a particular problem. Again, to jump into, into entrepreneurship with both feet, you, you kind of need to be extremely passionate about solving a particular problem. But then the ability to articulate the strategy around it to think about why your business might be better than the other businesses that already might be in a particular space, and then to operationalize that strategy. And the first thing that comes to mind is ability to hire, to figure out who you need to hire that is complementary to you, but then also to be able to go and hire them and to attract them. And when you have a seven-person startup, especially in Europe, where people tended to be a bit more conservative, the ability to sell and get a, attract top talent is certainly not trivial. Some of the great combos I, I thought, you know, in some of our unicorns like Hybo or AppSlyer is a really strong combination of a, a CEO and a CTO co-founding team where, you know, the CEO is really focusing on commercializing the business, but then has a very reliable CTO to continue helping, you know, scale the technology and product. So I always, you know, when, when people come to me as founders who say, look, who should I be thinking about? You know, just get yourself a reliable CTO because it can go a long way as you scale the company. And then the final thing I would say that, that you know, really is a commonality for some of our successful companies is just 
ability to execute very fast. You know, some of our companies went from 1 million of ARR to 100 million of ARR to annualized recurring revenue in, in four or even less than five years. And the ability to move fast is the move fast and fix things is sort of the, uh, the best phrase I used or heard. So those are just some elements of, but I would say, obviously, every founder can be different. And there are all sorts of shapes and sizes of, of founders, I would say, that can be successful. For sure. And on, and on the flip side, what are the red flags or common things that let founders down? And we say we ask this to help anyone that's going through this pitching process at the moment. Yeah, look, I'm, I'm a stickler for honesty. You know, great pitching and, and stretching the truth, I think, is part of the entrepreneurial um, toolkit, I would say. It's really sometimes when you kind of realize that maybe there are certain things that are just not the case or not true. And investing is oftentimes, I say to the entrepreneurs, it's a little bit like marriage. You know, we're in this for a much, much longer period. If it goes well, you know, we might be in it together for 10 years plus. And if it doesn't go so well, we might also be in it for 10 years plus. So building the foundation of trust early on in that relationship, I think is quite important. I think honesty is paramount in that. 100%. It's so true. It's at the cornerstone of any good marriage and partnership. So uh, yeah, good advice for anyone that's listening uh, at the moment. You talked about trust there as an important, something that really matters to you in honesty. That's a nice segue into just talking a bit about Eight Roads' culture and thesis and how you operate as a fund. How has that evolved over the years? And, and how would you describe it to anyone that maybe doesn't know how you think about these things? There are two big pillars for us. Number one is this kind of entrepreneurial centricity. And one of the things that we do on a regular basis, is we track kind of our NPS with our own portfolio founders. And I'm proud to say that last time we measured it was 90. But more importantly than this high, you know, we really try and work to make sure that our entrepreneurs are our biggest fans. And in a competitive market, where, you know, oftentimes it's hard to tell, you know, what, what's the brand message of fund A to fund B? You know, my, our strong view is it's the entrepreneurs who will make the difference. Great entrepreneurs are quite well networked. They'll do their references and, you know, they'll very quickly learn. And so we spend a lot of time, you know, focusing on that. But just as importantly, you know, one thing that, that we also do internally is going back to the team spirit. We try to build a great culture within our venture firm. And, you know, my early sort of insights in kind of VC partnerships is that they can be quite individualistic. And what we sort of said is, look, if we have a place where everybody loves coming to work every day and we have great returns and results, then no one will ever want to leave. And so we really spend a lot of time. And I'm, again, proud to say that our team culture scores continue to be the highest scores of all of the things that we sort of measure on a half annual basis. I love that. Thank you for sharing. It's so important. You know, these things for founders and investors, you know, attrition is not something that you want, particularly in VC, you want to keep that team happy and motivated. And it certainly sounds like you're doing a great job with that. I guess for you personally, as an investor, uh, how have you evolved over the years? You know, you, you are managing partner, you've gone from sort of, you know, as you talked about the imposter syndrome at the early part of your career to being an incredibly renowned investor. So how do you feel you've changed as a leader and as an investor over the years? Yeah, I think probably the one thing that I've learned is to listen to my gut instinct more. I think I had to unlearn a few things and I tell, you know, our folks on our team to unlearn a few things. And in consulting, one thing that you learn is to be just 
hypercritical and analytical about every single thing, and that's fantastic. But then when you are faced with potentially an, an exciting, but at the same time, scarily early stage startup, if you're just looking for problems, you will find a lot of them. And so sometimes your gut instinct is telling you, look, this could be something really, really huge. And I'm, again, I'm fortunate to, to find my way into a few of them. But I've also said no to so many. And when I look back to kind of the really the early years of, of my career, it's oftentimes been just being a little bit too smart for your own good. Like, well, asking one extra question and the question might be is not the right question to ask, or it is the right question, but it just in the long term is not going to matter because the opportunity is just so fantastic or the founder is so amazing or the product is so unique and differentiated that it's going to make up from all of the potential shortcomings of that early stage startup at that time. Thank you. Um, I'd love to look forward. Uh, you know, we've had a challenging last year, let's put it like that, but uh, I'm definitely seeing green shoots and reason to be optimistic. So what are your predictions for the tech ecosystem in 2024 in Europe and what sectors or markets are you most excited about? The first thing is that in many ways, I think it's Churchill said, you know, don't let a good crisis go to waste. 2021 was a sort of a, a very unique but in some ways, anomalistic year in the market where everything was doing well and everyone was getting funded. And also for every company, there was many more competitors than typically. I think hopefully 23, 24 is becoming a bit more of a realistic back to basics type of a market. I mean, there's still, as you said, you know, venture capital money around. And I feel like for the strong entrepreneurs, they can focus on, you know, building and, you know, they're obviously AI is a very interesting theme and digital health. There are lots of sort of interesting themes that we can think about. But I think the, the most important point I would say is that these tough conditions are oftentimes where the best companies are formed. So if you think about 2001, uh, you know, Google came out of those times. Skype came out of those times. So sometimes the best companies get formed and they become almost kind of like a, an attractor of top talent because there may be not so many opportunities out there in the market. So I think in some ways, this is really a good time to be a founder, but also to join a startup because a little bit of that hot air kind of has come out of the, the system. That's super exciting. And I know that Eight Roads worked with Hi Bob on a survey of young people working in tech, uh, young generation in tech, I think it's called, over the last couple of years. So do you mind telling us a bit about the findings of that survey? Because I think that'd be super interesting for our, our listeners. Sure. So we started doing this for a couple of years, especially as technology has now doubled in, in size in terms of the GDP. I think it's now about 8% of the European GDP. You know, attracting top talent, young talent into those companies is critical for the continued success. And so we started a couple of years ago interviewing about 2,000 young tech workers to see, you know, what do they think? And what was interesting is that a year ago uh, when we started it, People were quite concerned about the state of their jobs and the security of their jobs. They were really nervous about the prospects of their company. And we had a lot of discussions around, you know, the quiet quitting movement. And this, this year has actually been quite different. The positivity and the outlook has been clear. I mean, you know, maybe kind of some of the, the worst layoffs have kind of worked through them, their way through the system. The folks feel twice as secure in their jobs. They are also quite excited about the prospects of using AI 
for their improved productivity as opposed to AI kind of taking away their jobs, like some of the Goldman and McKinsey reports have, have been sort of touting. They feel like they want to go back to the office. So vast, I think over 60% of the people want to go to back to the office at least four or maybe even five times a week, which again, is kind of back to basics and back to usual. And then finally, they want help with their mental state. So over half of them say that their job and the stress of the job has an impact on their mental health. So those were some of the things that we took away that I think are quite actionable for startups. And the good news, I guess, in all of it is that AI will probably, it won't replace you, but the person who knows how to use AI might replace the person who doesn't know how to use AI. Yeah, very true. Well, it's kind of the, the hottest topic around at the moment. Do you have any further thoughts on AI, uh, you know, and how it's shaping technology? And for anyone that might be skeptical or super excited, like what are your views? I think in general, certain technologies get overestimated in the short run and underestimated in the long run. And clearly, we're in the early innings of, of AI. Before the LLMs, there were lots of other different AI kind of technologies, and we've invested in a number of companies already over the last five years. So I think right now, maybe the hype is kind of what makes people a little bit overwhelmed. At the same time, I feel like there is this undercurrent of real kind of the next S-curve of innovation that's going to help both existing companies and existing businesses, as well as will create new businesses with completely new opportunities that will be leveraging these AI systems. And so what we are spending a lot of time on is looking at both categories, both how AI can power the existing startups and you know, the existing companies, because we have about 50 portfolio companies just in Europe alone. And then we are also trying to think about, okay, but what, what is the new use cases and the new things that AI can facilitate? And so I think under that hype and that kind of sort of overall, you know, and again, technology lends itself to these kind of hype cycles. I think there is this undercurrent of innovation that it's going to touch all of us. And so I think in, if you take a 10-year view or, or maybe 15, 20-year view, I think it's pretty exciting to see how not just us, but our children will do their jobs on a regular kind of a ongoing basis. Definitely. It's to be embraced, I think. And there's so many incredible opportunities out there. Before we get to our, our wrap-up questions, Davo, I really wanted to get your opinion on the evolution of VC. It's come a long way in the last few years for what was a, a relatively nascent industry when you started in it over here. What are your hopes for the industry in the year ahead? And are there any trends you're seeing within VC that you think are particularly important for our audience to hear? You know, when I entered the industry in kind of mid-2000s, as I call it, you know, the, the entrepreneurial ice age, I could have never imagined that within less than a generation, the, the Europe's best and brightest are going to be choosing startups, both founding startups as well as entering startups as their career of choice. I think it's really, really exciting. And we can kind of ask ourselves, where are we today? I think what's really exciting and people should be exciting is that actually in addition to just people choosing those careers, we are seeing Europe becoming, in some cases, even a more preferred location for building companies than maybe Silicon Valley would have been. So there are a few companies recently, for example, in the AI space that we looked at where the founders are European founders who build successful companies in the US and decided for personal and other reasons to set up their next company in Europe. So 
The first phase, kind of no startups whatsoever. The second phase is, okay, European startups are there, but they're not quite the same level as the US. And I think now we're saying, saying look, I think we will might see maybe the next Google or Meta come out of one of the European cities. And I'm really, really excited about that next 10-year prospect. Yeah, super exciting. I'm, uh, I feel similar to be working in and around this space, even in a sort of an adjacent way as a headhunter. I couldn't be more excited about, you know, how far it's come in the last few years and how, you know, how much incredible talent is flowing into the ecosystem. It's brilliant to see. Davo, it's been such a pleasure to chat with you, but we're sadly at our three wrap-up questions. So first up, I've got to ask you for your best piece of career advice you'd like to leave our listeners with as we record this at the beginning of 20. 24. Just do it. I think there's a lots of videos out there on things to do, things not to do, etc. I feel like in general, lots of good things happen when you just put yourself out there. And if you have a dream, if you have even an idea, just start moving towards it. And then new things will open up and new possibilities. And I think it's really time and again that we've seen great companies start in one place and end up in a completely different place. But until you start doing it and moving, you just can't get there. Yeah, great advice. And what are you personally and professionally most excited about for 2024 for yourself and also for 8Roads? I like downturns. You know, I like when people start to throw in the towel and start to get discouraged. I've lived through multiple times like this, you know, 2001, 2009, I know that there, is, there are great times on the back end of this, but also the competition is going to be less. And I'm pretty excited about the fact that other people are really not excited. So instead of a typical Buffett, you know, be greedy with us or fearful, I think it's good. It's good for the industry to go through a period like this. Yeah, lots of opportunity for you going forward. That's exciting. And finally, given you are on 40 Minute Mentor, if you could be mentored by anyone, dead or alive, who would it be and why? Some ideas I had, I think you you had some guests mentioned, you know, people like Michael Jordan, who's my childhood hero. So I'll throw out a name that might not be as familiar to folks. His name is George Dorio. He's the founder of Venture Capital, operated in kind of the 1950s and all the way to 1970s. And some of the first investments he's made are deemed to be kind of the first venture investments and you know things that we take for granted today like minority investment board seats capital at risk you know a lot of that was sort of invented in those early days and you know he was a um, professor at Harvard Business School and my alma mater and then he actually went on to set up Insad Business School and had lots of other projects that he worked on and you know I just love to kind of get his perspectives on, I think he'd made something like 150 investments over the period. I think he was investing well into his 70s. So it'd probably be an interesting person for me to to continue learning from uh, as I enter the next phase of my career. Yeah, what an in- inspirational mentor and really apt and perfect way to finish this. Thank you, Davo. It's been a real pleasure and a privilege. Wish you and the 8 Roads team all the very best for the rest of 2024 and beyond. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Davo. Thank you for the content. Appreciate it. Cheers. And that is all from us today. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. We really hope you enjoyed it even half as much as we enjoyed recording it. 
If you're a new listener and haven't left us feedback before, we would really appreciate it if you did. We'd love to hear what you love most about 40 Minute Mentor and how you think we can make it even better. So if you have 30 seconds after this episode, I'd be so grateful if you could head to ratethispodcast.com forward slash 40mm and leave us a rating and review. You can also leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. As always, if we've left any questions unanswered in today's episode, or if you have any suggestions for future episodes, then please do let our head of marketing, Hannah, know. Thank you so much again for all your support. And I hope to see you next Wednesday for even more pocket-sized mentorship. Thank you.